that the vast majority of people who arrive here overlap will still go into the asylum system. What then happens, and this is critical, is they will be treated differently. They will effectively be discriminated against because their rights and entitlements will be very different to those who come here under a pre-arranged program through so-called safe routes. So hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host Nathan and today I'm delighted to be joined by the Chief Executive of the Refugee Council, um, Enver Solomon. So welcome Enver. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, we're meeting at a really precarious time in, in the world with Russia having invaded the, the Ukraine. But by way of background, let me just briefly set out that 70 years ago, the world came together and drafted the Refugee Convention. And written into its articles and international law was a promise to humanity that wherever despots reign through persecution and torture, our fellow human beings were not restricted restricted by borders to seek sanctuary, that they could flee and seek safety without prior authorization because they were exercising their right to life and safety. Uh, millions of Jews died during the Holocaust because the world order, as it was then, required prior consent for refugees to travel. The drafting of the Refugee Convention post the Holocaust and the Second World War was the world saying never again. And subsequently, the, the 1951 Convention and its 1967 Protocol was ratified by 149 states. Today in Britain, Parliament has before it a Nationality and Borders Bill, which seeks to fundamentally depart from the Convention's tenet. So I wonder, Enver, as the events are that are evolving in the Ukraine and the UNHCR talking about some 500,000 people, who've gone to neighbouring countries as as refugees. What do you make of what the British government is, is trying to do? Are they fundamentally trying to rewrite the Refugee Convention? I think they are, and I think it's a great concern and, and rather shocking, not least given the fact that it's important to remember that back in 1951, the UK was, if you like, one of the founding fathers of the convention. We were one of the main signatories. We were one of the nations that made the convention a reality. And yet here we are, seven decades later, and we have a government which is effectively saying that how you reach the UK determines how you are then treated when you arrive, mm. and whether or not you get, you have, you have the ability to have a fair hearing to determine whether you are granted refugee status or not. So I would really like to actually see their legal advice. Mm. Um, Many parliamentarians have asked for it. Uh, It hasn't been published. I think the UNHCR is very clear that what the government is doing goes against the principles uh, of the convention. They struggle to see how it is legally in line with the convention. They, of course, are the keepers of the convention. And I think given that, there's no question that this government 
in effect, is seeking to drive a coach and horses through that convention. Hmm. So would you go so far as to say that this is the end of asylum? That you can't, if you, if you don't arrive here with prior authorization, you can't claim asylum in Britain anymore? I won't quite get that far because the bill does actually um, allow people to still apply for asylum. What it is saying is that people will be ruled inadmissible mm. if they come through a safe third country. But, and this is an important but, is that officials in the Home Office are very clear that cases will only be ruled inadmissible if it's possible to return an individual, a person, a man, woman, or child, to another safe country, to so-called safe country, and to do that, they'll need a return agreement. And they don't have return agreements with European nations, with France or other EU nations. So what that means is that they won't be able to return someone, therefore they won't be able to deem their case inadmissible. Therefore, they will end up going into the asylum system and being able to make an asylum claim. So I actually think that when this, if this bill is passed in its in its entirety, it does become law, mm -hmm. I actually think that the vast majority of people who arrive here overlap will still go into the asylum system. What then happens, and this is critical, is they will be treated differently. They will effectively be discriminated against because their rights and entitlements will be very different to those who come here under a pre-arranged program through so-called safe routes, mm. who were granted leave to remain and are granted entitlements based on those safe routes and those programs. Right. So, is it is it the group of people whose cases are deemed inadmissible who this bill then criminalises? Is that correct? And would those people actually serve a prison sentence? Well, actually, what it's saying is that if someone has entered illegally. Mm. Uh, they could be they could be criminalised. So um, the, the Home Office will make a ruling about whether your form of entry is illegal. They're saying that people that come across the channel are effectively seeking to enter illegally uh, because they don't have permission to enter the country. So they could be prosecuted and imprisoned for up to four months. It is in effect criminalising people, criminalising innocent men, women and children. And it's important to remember that these are people who, you know, they could be you or I. Hmm. They, they've, they've lost everything uh, through no fault of their own. They, their lives have been turned upside down. And if they come through a, uh, if they come to the UK through, through a means which the Home Office, the Border Force decide is, is as an illegal entry, mm -hmm. the Home Office, the Border Force could then seek to prosecute them for illegal entry, and that could result in a prison sentence of up to four years. Astonishing. That's ex that's extraordinary. What what are your staff telling you, Enver? Um, after twenty eight thousand people who've arrived by boat, has has anybody been been prosecuted? And what sort of conditions are those people living in? Because we now know that there is this return of institutionalized accommodation in the form of of Napier barracks, where mostly young men are being placed to live there. Well, what, what's your understanding of what's obtaining on the ground? 
So the situation is is really challenging for people at the moment. As mm -hmm. you say, we've got the situation in Napier Barracks, and it it, it has been really appalling there. Um, mm. The arrangements around the pandemic have not been good enough. Inspectors, independent inspectors, have raised serious concerns. Mm -hmm. I think the Home Office has tried to improve things, put more support in uh, more programmes um, and things have improved a bit. But, but actually, it's the overall picture which is of serious concern because 25,000 people mm -hmm. who have come seeking asylum are in hotels and they're in hotels for long periods of time. These aren't five-star nice hotels with gyms and swimming pools, but mm. they've been to them. These are grotty, simple, basic hotels, often on the edge of urban areas, uh, mm. cut off and quite isolated. Um, and people are being left there with very little information, uh, very little support, uh, no ability to access health services, um, mm. no therapeutic support, um, and it, it, it's leaving them in a state of, of crisis, deep anxiety. Um, and it means that in effect for many of them, mm -hmm. they feel it's a very dehumanizing experience. And I, and I think that is the reality. And that's what we're finding out from our work, trying to support people in hotels, just how isolated, how cut off, how they feel abandoned, how they feel that they're not being treated as, as individuals with, with legitimate human needs, but are actually being treated as though there's some kind of second-class citizen, if you like. Mm. There's some 15,000 people who were airlifted from, from Afghanistan who, who are here, and most of whom are, are in hotels. Well, what are you hearing about Operation Welcome? Have, have they been welcomed into communities really well, and are they settling in? Yeah, well, we're working with Afghan families. Some, some of them have been moved out of hotels into homes, and, mm -hmm. and we, we're working with some families that are in homes up in Yorkshire uh, and other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they are, they are settling okay, uh, and they're being supported to, to rebuild their lives, but far too many. Some, somewhere in, in, in the region of, of around about, you know, 10,000 are still in hotel Afghans. And, and again, I've been to some of those hotels mm. and they're not pleasant. They're um, quite isolated. And I went to one hotel where there were children under the age of five, so not able to go to school, running around, no nursery provision. You know, imagine living in a hotel room Mm. with very small children that have got nothing to do all day. I mean, it would drive anyone to, to their wit's end. Um, and there's, there's not a lot of support for those families. What, what, what is the, what is the fundamental the issue? Getting, the Afghans are getting a bit of a better deal than people in the asylum system because they are granted a proper medical check. Mm -hmm. um, there is funding given to, to local health services to support those Afghans. And there's funding to local authorities to put in wraparound support services mm. in a way that isn't in place for asylum seekers and hotels. So what? Effectively, there's there's a two tier system, is there? Where people who are who come here with prior authorization, and I suspect with a right to work, and and access to benefits, are are prioritised 
over people who are actually in the asylum system who've got it it's, it's exactly the differentiation that the bill is going to bring in because if you come in through a so-called safe route to manage program mm-hmm. you get a different status you get different therefore different status you get different access to, to services to benefits um the right to work and so forth so in effect it is a two-tier system you're right Hmm. Will, will the refugee council be coming forward with a legal challenge to because what what what's the distinction these are all people who are fleeing war persecution torture why why deferential treatment because given the the situation in ukraine i i heard the home secretary this afternoon saying that there's a program which might mean that up to 100,000 people may be eligible to come if they have family, close family who are here. How, how is this sustainable, this two-tier system? It's a, a travesty of the convention. It's discriminatory. It's wholly unfair. It is not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be differentiating between the so-called deserving Mm-hmm. That undeserving refugee or refugees are the same. Mm-hmm. They deserve to be treated the same. They deserve to be supported in the same way. They don't deserve to be treated differently simply because the government has chosen to provide a so-called safe route for some refugees, but not for others. And I think it, it demonstrates that the government's approach is discriminatory. It's unfair. And it's unjust. And we are calling the government out on it. I've written a, an article today in a national newspaper doing that. Mm-hmm. We are lobbying MPs and peers. The, the, the House of Lords will be voting tonight on this very key part of the bill, Clause 8, the, the, the part which allows for discrimination and differentiation in treatment. Mm-hmm. And we're working hard to ensure the government is defeated in the votes tonight in the Lords. Mm-hmm. I'm sure as and when the bill becomes an act, depending whether or not it is reformed, mm-hmm. there will be legal challenges and we will look to support those as and when they come forward. Right, okay. Um, that sounds all very very, very difficult, doesn't it? Um, there's a further clause in the bill about offshoring. What, what is your understanding about this? Help, help our audience to understand what the government is attempting to do here. That's an important question. So the government is trying to do what has happened in Australia hmm. and what Denmark has, has been looking at, which is essentially to say that they want to take people who want to make an asylum claim, put them in another territory. That mm-hmm. territory might be a, a territory that is a UK overseas territory, mm-hmm. or it might be another jurisdiction, a, another t- country completely. It wants to hold them there and it wants to uh, take them through the asylum system whilst they are there. Um, it's quite extraordinary that the government would be thinking to do this. They think that it would act as a deterrent. It won't act as a deterrent in any shape or form. We know from the experience in Australia that it causes huge distress to people, Mm -hmm. uh, resulting in them um, self-harming, attempting to take their own lives. It's wholly unnecessary and and really inhumane. Hmm. But the reason the government is doing this is because it, it thinks it will act as a deterrent. It will stop people. 
coming to the UK. Um, yet there's no evidence to, to, to show that. But it's also important to say that actually the government hasn't really advanced these plans. It, mm. it doesn't have a location where it can place people offshore. Um, there's been talk of, of it being Albania, Rwanda. Every time the government names a country, that country says, we're not going to do it. We, we, we've made no agreement with the UK government. So there's a lot of hot air here. There's a lot of spin. There's a lot of propaganda, so to speak. Mm. Um, but what the bill will do, it will allow the, the government to do to do this if it chooses to do so. But the practicalities of it mean that I think it's going to be very difficult for it to actually do it, even if it wants to. Yeah, so you, you generally don't think it will come to fruition? I'm sceptical. I mean, where, where are they going to place people? Mm. There's no British overseas territory that I think where it could work. But, you know, you don't underestimate a government that wants to be cruel and heartless Mm. towards people who um, they feel uh, pose a real threat to to our country. Um, So I I struggle to see how it can work, but I wouldn't put it it beyond this government to to doing its damnedest to try and make it work. Yeah. What, what aspects of this bill will actually assist the asylum process to work much more efficiently? Because currently, there's a backlog of about 100,000 cases. How have we got to this point where people are waiting and sitting in limbo for periods of over 12 months? How, how has this happened? It's a good question. How, how could we have got here? We've got here... Um, and it's not just because of COVID. Obviously, COVID posed challenges because it meant it was difficult for the system to work in the way it should be, mm. and it resulted in further backlogs. But there were huge backlogs before COVID, and I think the reason why mm-hmm. it's happened is because it's a ba- essentially it's a badly run system. The government hasn't resourced it properly, it hasn't put in enough staff, mm-hmm. it hasn't trained them properly, it hasn't created systems and processes to make efficient decisions in a timely manner. Mm. And it's been it's been badly run and badly run and badly managed by a government that, that doesn't know how to run a fair, humane, and and effective, efficient, orderly asylum system, and hasn't wanted to do so. Right. And and that's the reality. You know, this, this system isn't an accident. It's happened as a consequence of of, of government ministers deciding that they don't care about whether the system works well or not. And they've allowed it to happen due to a lack of resource, a lack of proper systems and processes, and a lack of good quality staffing to be able to make timely, good quality decisions. It and doesn't have to be like this. Yeah, and this Germany, one. they make decisions in six months on the vast majority of cases. So in Germany, they make decisions within six months? Yeah, a- broadly, they make most decisions in six months. Virtually all decisions are made in six months. Right, okay. So there's- in other European countries, they do it in a more timely fashion. Not all. Mm. But my point is that, you know, this this, this is as a consequence of, of poor government delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it doesn't and shouldn't be like this. So there, there is a proposal to create a one-stop type shop where you yes. provide all of your evidence at... In, in one session, how do you think practically that will operate? Because if, if as you suggest, that this department, the Home Office, is, is under-resourced, 
Are you confident that that will be a fair system? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not clear how they're going to do this so-called one-stop shop. Um, some listeners might remember that, you know, there was the fast track system mm. many, many years ago mm. uh, for cases um, where they tried to do something like this. I, mm. I'm not clear how they're going to do this. It, it much depends on how the uh, inadmissibility rules are applied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they can deem someone inadmissible straight away, because the way it works is they have to issue someone with a notice of intent. Mm-hmm. They then have to investigate further and determine whether they, they, they can actually rule the case inadmissible. I'm not sure they're going to do this in a one-stop shop, rapid way. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk and a lot of, you know, I, uh, a lot of spin being put out there by political advisors we'll have to wait and see but i've certainly haven't heard anything to suggest that it's going to operate like like that although be able to operate it like that and and turn around decisions in a matter of weeks yeah and there's there are a lot of children who who come to this country um envo who come to seek protection there is there are new age assessment rules what do you make of that? Because a lot of local authorities are are finding difficulty establishing people's ages and so are, aren't really taking care of people who are children and are leaving them to, you know, to, to the third sector, to charities. Are you, are right. you concerned about this? Yeah, that's right. And we see this in our work. We're particularly concerned about how poor quality decisions Mm-hmm. are leading to, to, to people who are children being placed in hotels with single adults and then they're being discovered by the hotel owner mm-hmm. or who's then telling the local authority the local authority could be coming to the hotel and they're shocked to find them there mm-hmm. so this is about the fact that decisions aren't being made that people aren't properly trained to make good quality decisions mm-hmm. decisions are made quickly there isn't uh, a, a, a process which takes time, which is child-centred, um, and there's nothing that the government is bringing forward in its in its reforms that suggests they will they will do it that way. Mm. Um, I would argue that any child that arrives here, the first their first need should be their need their welfare needs, yeah, and their well mental well-being, mental health. And those should be met very first before you even begin to start pushing through the process of asylum um, intake and assessment and decision making, and certainly before you look at, uh, at their age, the age issue. It's particularly of concern that they're planning to introduce some kind of scientific assessment methods. Mm. Um, again, you know, experts in the field think this is this isn't. Um, medical experts in the field feel that, that these these mechanisms are not appropriate, mm. uh, and again, they're, they're not child centred. And, and you know, I, I think the government is being driven here by again an agenda which is around deterrence, mm-hmm. which is around trying to keep people out, mm. and you know, is, is is working on the assumption that, that most people come here to play the system, mm. uh, which is the wrong assumption actually. Yeah, there there isn't any evidence of that, is there? Um, is there is there a precedent for these age assessment 
being done anywhere in any other jurisdiction? So other, other European jurisdictions do use forms of scientific methods to mm. assess age. Um, but it's all about how the process is conducted and how the children are treated. And, you know, if, if the driver here for the Home Office is simply to try and refuse as many people as possible or to push them into the adult system, that's not the right approach. And I think, you know, the, the view of some government ministers has been that there are far too many people playing the system pretending to be children. Yeah. Um, they're coming at it, it from that perspective, rather from, from this perspective of, you know, let's take a child welfare approach to this. Yeah. Um, finally, Enver, there is um, the expansion of the detention estate. We've, we've seen that in at Hassocksfield in Consett in County Durham. There's a new detention uh, center. This one is particularly for women. Now, why why would this be, be necessary at this stage? Why do we want to expand the detention estate? And particularly the fact that there's no time limit on people being detained. What's, what's going on with that? It's a very good question. It's really, really disappointing because when the, the former prison ombudsman, Stephen Shaw, did his review of detention a few months ago, when Theresa, not a few months, a few years back, sorry, when mm. Theresa May was Home Secretary, um, uh, or I think it was when Sajid Javid was Home Secretary, sorry, the current Health Secretary, mm. the move then was really to try and move away from detention and they created these detention, alternative detention pilots. Mm. Um, and it, it's really alarming that, that that no longer appears to be the government's direction of travel. Mm. Um, detention's wholly inappropriate. Individuals, you know, shouldn't be detained. If someone is is awaiting removal, we need to treat them with dignity mm-hmm. um, and humanity. Um, if someone has committed a crime uh, and under the British criminal justice system has been held in in prison as a result of of, of, of uh, having committed that crime, that's a that's a different issue. But you shouldn't be holding people for immigration purposes mm-hmm. in detention at all. And I struggle to see why the government should be doing this. Uh, it's a huge waste of money. Mm-hmm. That was very clear from the review that was conducted. There are alternative mechanisms that can be uh, used in the community. It's it's wholly unnecessary and really. Um, punitive and actually I think demonstrates a, a degree of cruelty toward, towards people mm-hmm. um, which is which is as I say really disturbing and unnecessary yeah and so taken together all of these changes that are that are happening ever since um, Theresa May introduced her hostile environment do you think Pretty Patel is actually ratcheting this up and it's actually going to get much, much, much worse for people who come here to seek sanctuary, that their whole experience won't be one of welcome and that the only people who appear seemingly on the face of it to benefit from any of these changes are people who are actually resettled here, who are taken from war zones or from neighboring countries and that those people only are people who will be recognized properly as refugees. I think the government has decided it wants to differentiate between those refugees that it sees as deserving, mm-hmm. need, 
to those who it sees as undeserving and who it is very, very clearly labelling as so-called illegal immigrants, which is totally wrong, of hmm. course, and uh, actually outrageous. I am really not very hopeful about what this government uh, wants to do. I think it wants to entrench the hostile environment. I think it believes that's the way to deter people, and it's in, in the mind of this government, it's all about deterrence. Um, and I think we have a huge challenge to try and build an alternative movement and narratives of welcome for people, regardless of you know how they reach the UK as refugees. And I actually think we can do that. And I think the vast majority of the British public mm-hmm. believe in the UN Convention, the principles behind the Convention of a Fair Hearing on UK soil, that we treat people with humanity, we treat them justly, mm-hmm. and we create a system that works effectively and efficiently, that is a, a system that sees in the eyes of, in the words of Wendy Williams, who conducted mm-hmm. the Windrush Review, that always sees the face behind the case yeah. and treats people as fellow human beings with dignity. And um, I think we will we will move back to that place, but only when we're able to show the terrible consequences of what the government is going to bring in with this bill, and mm-hmm. how it will create a more punitive, regressive, harmful, cruel system that will not work, mm-hmm. that will be ineffective, that will result in further delay. Um, and that will have disastrous human consequences. And I think by showing that, we can build momentum to move towards a system which is far more humane and fair and treats people with dignity. Now, on that hopeful note, Enver, thank you so much for speaking to us. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that CARAG does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.